People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. And I'm very pleased to introduce you to my guest tonight, whose name is Sarita Stern. Now, Sarita has just published a memoir called The Inner Voice of Sound, along with Sally Argent. And it details her passionate search for beautiful sound, coupled with a strong desire to serve and bring to her students the fruits of her own hard-won life lessons. Despite her successes as both a professional opera singer and teacher, Sarita possessed an insatiable hunger for spiritual fulfillment and deep need to make sense of a life impacted by a dysfunctional childhood home and a serious accident. And her story, as we discover in this book, is one of triumph over setbacks, a life lived to the full. And looking through the book and through the list of singers that Sarita has trained is really quite impressive, especially to see how many have gone overseas and are making massive careers over there. So, Sarita, thank you for coming and um, welcome to Fine Music Radio. Thank you, Rodney. May I say to our listeners that you are 90? You may. Okay, you are 90 and still going strong. Pretty strong. <laughs> well, you got here, and here you are with an interview. Yes. Now, the thing I want to ask you about this book, before we talk about anything else, is why did you call it The Inner Voice of Sound? That's going to be a little bit difficult to explain, but I'm going to do my best. Okay. It took me right into my adult years and latter adult years to realize that I was fascinated with sound and very aware of sound in life. Obviously starting from a child when I used to sing, hear other people singing and and thought, I don't know, I don't like that sound. (laughs) It's not nice. Mm. I'm talking about the age of about seven, eight. And then I would hear somebody else sing and I thought, I love that sound. That's a beautiful sound. So that was in the church choir, all in the church choir. I also was brought up to what movies, uh, beautiful musicals um, with Jeanette MacDonald, Nelson Eddy, uh, Deanna Durbin from the Metropolitan Opera. I watched the movies and was totally fascinated with their sounds. Mm. And I thought, that's lovely. Never realizing that I was probably interpreting some of it and listening with a very clear ear. So this continued the sound and the awareness of sound. But something that really fascinated me greatly was, as I mentioned it in the book, about a Christmas Eve that I spent in Leipzig, in the east of Germany, attending a church service and waiting outside the church to be about half past ten to be opened a cold crisp evening be dark and wonderful Um, not a soul around a few people attending the church about ten young people on the other side 
I heard this amazing sound come through the darkness and the cold of the evening. I said to my companion, she was my hostess, what bird is that? What bird is that? What bird is that? It was the most exquisite sound I'd ever heard in my life. She said, oh, that's the nightingale. Oh, my gosh. Then I realized why the great composers and the great poets have written about that. It is the sweetest, the most beautiful sound God ever created. And then I realized how come that I'm so fascinated by beautiful sound. Time went on in the last few years since then, and more and more the sound of my own voice. What do I like about my own voice and what do I not like? Which really encouraged me, of course, to seek further training. The singing for me was not just getting on the stage and appearing and performing and making music. It was about sound. What kind of sound am I offering to the people? Is it a beautiful sound? And I had no idea. I had no idea. Some many years later, I mentioned Marjorie Armstead, who discovered me as a little girl in the church. I was seven to come and join the choir. Um, when I met her, many now oh, she used to come and attend student concerts of mine. And when I had a chance to speak to her, because I hadn't seen her for many, many years, I said, Marjorie, what did I sound like as a child? Oh, I, I, I can't remember. She, she said to me, you had a clear crystal voice like a bell. A lovely thing to say. Absolutely. I, I thought, oh, because I, I, I couldn't remember that at all. Yeah, I, I had no re- recollection of how mm. I sounded. Mm. And then there's another part to it. Sound carries vibration, as we know. Indeed. We know it can crack the chandeliers with the great So everybody knows that, especially in the singing world. And I thought, what is this power of sound? This is something that is not, people haven't thought about it. They haven't listened. And I thought, with this sound, How do I listen to God? Do I listen to God? The whole lot sort of came together. And I realized, yeah, maybe I don't listen to God. Maybe I do. But I became very aware of this. And I thought, what is the power of sound? We're going to stop at this point. Well, pause, I should say, because immediately I want to play your voice. There's an aria um, by Guno that you sang. Um, How long ago was this that we're going to listen to, Sarita? Uh, How long ago? Uh, It was recorded with David Tidbold in 89 on my return from Vienna. Concert with the Sunday night concert with the city orchestra. Okay. By invitation. So now we'll hear our guest Sarita Stone herself singing this aria by Guno with David Tidbold conducting the orchestra.
Well, that aria by Gruner was sung by Sarita Stern in 1979, I think you said, Sarita, with the Cape Town Orchestra conducted by David Tidbold. Sarita Stern is my guest on People of Note this week, and we're talking about her memoir that has just been released called The Inner Voice of Sound, which not only is a lovely and inspiring read, but there are lots of photographs and lots of press cuttings as well. Sarita, you mentioned a um, spiritual site, which we'll come back to, but Let's move on from when you were seven singing in the choir. How did you become a professional singer? What turned you into a professional singer? Oh, many, many, many years later. Mm. I stopped singing just at concerts. There was no profession. I just sang. I had a few lessons when I was about 16 with one or two teachers. Didn't quite understand what was going on and couldn't really afford to pay for the lessons myself. I was mm-hmm. earning my own living. And oh, maybe it was all too serious for me. I don't know. And so I yeah, just dropped it, got married at, at the age of 21. Okay, and I had my two children. And we had a friend who'd been the accompanist for one of the singing teachers that I'd worked with on a sort of casual basis. And she used to come and visit and have dinner, stay over, have a lovely supper we used to have, and sleep over. And she was a good friend, good musical friend. It's a well-known name, especially she has an award that she offers at Stellenbosch University to this day still, I think. Her name is Mabel Quick. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And Mabel asked me one day after supper, just Sarita, when are you going to start singing again? And I said, no, I'm not going to start singing again. I don't feel like singing again. She, she said, uh, why? Why is that? She, I said, no, I, don't, I just don't have a feeling for it. And so she left it at that. And another occasion, she asked me again, when are you going to start singing? Have you thought about it? In between these times that she asked me these, this question, I used to get a a sound in my head saying, you've been given a gift and you're not using it. And I thought, oh, that's nothing. Don't take any notice of it. But that pursued me. It didn't give up. The voice went on and on until I thought, why does it go on? I don't want to start singing again. And when Mabel asked me the second time, I thought, I wondered if there was a connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I still pondered one day. Oh, my family said, yes, come on, why don't you start singing again? I, I, the feeling was not to take on a response, heavy responsibility. I'd not really, now I was much older, I was uh, 27. Yes, which is rather old to start. Absolutely. Yes. Old to start singing but I felt that I needed to be doing something hmm. in my life. With I'd just uh, been converted and studied for the Judaic. Yes, because your <laughs> husband was Jewish, That's wasn't right, he? And I you converted. Be. That's right. Right. Yes. So I thought oh, I've got time in the morning. The children. My daughter was at nursery school. My son was at at big school, well, junior school. And I thought maybe I should think about it. never having a desire. Hmm. It was almost a sense of loyalty. As I was told to do something, 
uh, that I should be doing. But you must have known at that point, or even before that, that you had a good voice. You were told by that lady how your voice sounded like a bell. Yes. So you knew you had a voice. I knew I had a voice, and it sung in my teen years, and it'd been with Young Ideas, and it's with African Consolidated Theatres. Yes, I knew I, I, I knew I loved singing. Mm. Was it just a domestic thing that made you give up? You didn't want to take on the responsibilities of an opera singer? Oh, I didn't think of opera. It was just that I should train my voice. She didn't even say you'd, you're going in, you would train you for an opera singer. Mm. She just said, um, why aren't you singing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's just it was a responsibility of just sit down and I would have to practice and I, and I smoked. Oh no, Sarita! <laughs> did you then? So did you then start singing at twenty-seven? Did you go for lessons and start the whole? I started regularly, and I thought, well, I'll give it a try. I'll try see what my Mabel says. Hmm. And Mabel said, "Well, Mabel said yes." I think I spoke about this at the book launch as well. You did. She, yes, she said, um, "Yo, there's a voice there still." She said, "But you have a long." Long way to go, my dear. <laughs> because you'd not practiced for so long or sung for so long. Yeah, I thought it had all gone. Mm. I, I couldn't sing. I had no clear sound. And I thought, I, I'll just go along and see. Mm. Where. But mm. there was no in real enthusiasm. That's interesting. It's interesting. And yet you did it. And then look what happened. Yes. And I, I often wondered what would have happened if I didn't listen to the voice mm, exactly there you are the lives of so many people that i've that you have affected yeah. in a very very positive way as i said at the beginning there's a long list of names here in your book of people that you have taught and it's quite extraordinary to see how many are are famous teachers but we just let's not get ahead of ourselves because now you went back to singing and you hadn't yet right. started teaching Oh, no. That came much later. Yes, and no no idea of teaching. No, I, f I started enjoying the lessons mm. because Mabel would take, give me some exercises and let me sing um, and gave me a little song. And I could hear the difference in my voice and I thought, that's quite nice and I'm quite enjoying it. I'll continue. And I became interested and I had regular lessons with her. And more and more until one day she said to me, would you like to enter in for the Eisteddford? Aha. Uh -huh. And I thought, yes, I would. There was an enthusiasm now and, mm. a, and, and, and a deep interest. I duly did that, entered in for the Eisteddford. I got a high mark. I remember Angelo Gobato. He won the opera prize that year. He, I see, he's written the foreword to your book. They're right. So clearly, and an absolute rave foreword as well from Angelo. Well, I'm very grateful. Yeah, very grateful. So he won the Eisteddford that year. Yes. That year. But I continued for the second year. But by this time, the singing teacher had become ill, and I was very keen to enter, and I needed somebody to help me. And there was a lady. Um, I'd become converted at that stage and wondered if they would dare take me in the Temple Israel Choir. Mm. I didn't know if they would take me if I was good enough. Uh, they, I didn't even have to audition. They just said, yes, you can come along. And that's where the, uh, <laughs> the, the ambition came in. I thought, 
I don't just want to be part of the chorus. I want to be a soloist. <laughs> that I could feel that coming in. Yes. One day I want to do the solos, the, some of the solos. That duly happened. That duly happened. And, and I grew and I became passionate about my, my studies and I liked what was happening. And I had opportunities to perform small concerts, just little here and there for people. Um, and in the Temple Israel, that uh, was all very exciting for me. There was a new passion in my life. Mm, absolutely. Well, in a moment, we're going to find out how you got into the world of opera here in Cape Town. But first of all, your next piece of music is uh, from, uh, who wrote this Contrabandier? Contrabandier. Yes, it's Mirella Freni Mirella singing. Mirella singing. Yes, yes. Have you chosen the various singers for a specific reason? I mean, Mirella yes. Freni is a most extraordinary soprano. Yes, I've only taken my favourites, oh. sopranos. It's interesting to see what's coming up. Okay, here's Mirella Freni.
the lovely soprano Mirella Freni there, and that music from Bizet's Carmen. And another choice of my guest who loves sound, Sarita Stern, uh, the singer whose new book, The Inner Voice of Sound, her memoir has just been published. And um, we got up to where you were singing the Temple of Israel choir, but just looking through all this, um, you very soon somehow got into the world of opera, didn't you, here in Cape Town? So obviously people picked up that this was a mezzo-soprano of great quality, and they started offering you roles. We didn't have a Cape Town opera yet. Ah, The only opera company performing was University, Mm -hmm. the College of Music, which we attended all the operas. And I had a feeling... I thought, hmm, I'd love to try. I know I'm not, I don't, it wasn't studying at the College of Music, but I wondered whether I could go and see P- Professor Fiasconaro. I'd had the opportunity of singing in a, in a public quartet with him through some acquaintances and said, they're putting on a concert, they need a mezzo, would you love beers? And it was all just wonderfully fun. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'd go and see. I thought it was a good idea. I was nervous to phone him. And I thought, oh, I'd, I wonder if he'll accept me. But he said he'll, he'll, I could come along to College of Music and he would listen to me. Mm. So I took my music along and he played it and I sang it. And I don't think I sang it particularly well. I hadn't yet mastered the top of my voice in any way, but I, <laughs> I had the nerve to sing. <laughs> <laughs> At the top, right. And, and Professor Bias Canaro said, jumped up, oh, he said, let me go and call Dr. Chisholm. Let him hear you. Mm. And he came in and he played the piano and he sang, I sang. And he said, um, yeah, that's very nice. Thank you. Aren't you a soprano? I said to him, I said, no, no, I'm not a soprano. Okay. Yeah, that's very nice. Thank you very much for coming along. Well, thank you. And he left me with Fiasconaro. Mm. And Fiasconaro said, well, thank you very much. We've Dr. Chisholm is here. You, thank you for coming along. And I remember coming out of the Baxter uh, College of Music, coming out through the Baxter from the College of and thinking, oh, I didn't sing very well, I'm sure. And I left it, and I came home to tell my family. And I said, how did it go? And I said, oh, I don't think it's yeah. Two weeks later, I got a letter. I received a letter from the College of Music offering me the role in their forthcoming production of Otello wow. as Emilia, Emilia de yeah. Well, it was beyond any, <laughs> anything that I can imagine. I couldn't believe it. It was to not only to do so a few performances, which were in those days at the City Hall, but also to take a tour later in the year to the Free State. To Bloemfontein, mm-hmm. I was great. That was my introduction to opera. To the magical world. I'd never been as a soloist on an opera stage or anything, mm. just as a performer, singer. So that was pretty, yes, a magical world. That was the beginning. Then my memory served me well. They asked me again to do another role. I think it was the following year. I think it was Cherubino mm-hmm. in The Marriage of Figaro. I again was, in the meantime, busy studying, learning, singing wherever I could. And so we went on until we came to the opening of Cape Town Opera. I got a my, t- my singing teacher, my then singing teacher, I had a new top singing teacher then. And she was really doing, I thought, wonderful things with my voice. 
she invited the head of music, the head of opera, it was Louis Stein, for a cocktail party, and she put on a concert with some of her students, and I was to sing. So I was very surprised when I got an invitation sometime later from Cape Town uh, Opera to sing in the Ludmilla, the role of Ludmilla, very small role mm. in the Bartered Bride. <laughs> right. That was the beginning of you the know what? professional. One thing I want to get in now before we move on is when you were offered the role of Carmen by Cape Town Opera, you were offered the principal role, the great Carmen, the great mezzo role, um, which must have absolutely thrilled you. And then you had a, a really awful tragedy. Would you talk about that just briefly or not? Absolutely, yes. I feel happy about that. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, there was going to be two operas for that season, for the forthcoming season. One was to be Cenerentola Rossini, mm-hmm. uh, which they offered me. That was They said, Would you, we want you to do Cenerentola. And the second opera to be performed was going to be Carmen. They had another... Um, it's so in mind. In fact, it was Evelyn Dahlberg, my colleague, Evelyn oh, Dahlberg. Yes, you, I'm sure you know Evelyn. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. But Evelyn fell pregnant <laughs> and she couldn't accept the role. After Sometimes she realized she wouldn't be able to do the role. We were very happy for her, but they, they had no calm. And they came straight away, they came to me and they said, are you interested in doing the <laughs> role of Carmen? And I said, am I interested? Right. I understudied it twice. Yeah, yeah. With, uh, the, the American singer, Neda Kaze. Uh, so I'd done it and I'd played the role of Mercedes. And now he was, I knew the role pretty well already. So uh, I accepted the role of Carmen. Well, first I said, I actually didn't know. I said, let me toss a coin. <laughs> Sarita, he, really? Heads, it's common. I didn't know what to say. I, I, I didn't know what I felt. I, I let the universe decide what. It's quite strange, isn't it? Let mm. the universe decide what I should do. Indeed. However, <laughs> it fell on heads, which meant Carmen. And and I, so you were cast and did I was cast into Carmen, job. yes. And then? And then, one week away from opening night... I had done a lot of singing that particular Friday evening, I think it was. I'd been to the SABC studios in Three Anchor Bay to do recordings. I did a lot of SABC work, quite a lot of recordings. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling a bit tired and I came home. The family, uh, my children were on holidays in the city. I lived in Durbanville at that time. I was then already separated from my husband going into the beginning of a divorce. Right, right. So I was alone in the house that night. And I went to bed early and I woke up at about, I switched on the lights at one o'clock. I looked at, I saw the bedroom door move and I thought, that's strange. I, I thought I'd close the bedroom door. And I thought I thought I put the doggy away. Maybe maybe I didn't close the door. Maybe he came away, put him away in the kitchen. Usually, maybe mm. he came down. It wasn't all very cohesive. Mm-hmm. I got up, went to the door, saw the door waver, 
And as I opened the door, there was a masked figure on the left-hand side. I opened with my right. There was this masked figure uh, stocking on the face, hat, raincoat pulled up, collar pulled up. It was very brief. He grabbed my left arm and threw me down onto the floor. Uh, it was all happened very quickly, and immediately there was a gush of liquid all over me. And all of a sudden, I, I had no vision. And I thought, this feels like water with oil in it, I thought. Uh, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I got up, and I, th- I thought, what is going on? Uh, I got up, and I slipped, and f- I found my th- something catching in my throat, and I thought to myself, first of all, I thought, who does this man think he is to come and do this to me? I thought, it oh, oh, didn't make sense. Yeah. I ran down the passage and fell again, grazed my legs and got up. And I thought, these are my last days on earth. This man or this person is going to grab me and murder me, mm. kill me. Huh? Mm. Strangely enough... I ran and he didn't grab me. And I thought, it's strange, he doesn't do anything more. He doesn't run after me. Because at that stage you didn't know it was acid. No, we didn't know what yeah, it was yeah. at that stage. And I ran out down the passage, turned left to the front door and the fly screen door. The front door was open and the fl- I put my hand onto the fly and I said, strange, I thought. I closed, the, why is the front door open? And then I couldn't see. Mm. Everything was just one blur. Mm. I ran out onto the patio and down onto the verge, the grass verge, and I stood out there and just felt it was raining, 11th of January, 1974. I touched my body and found I, ha- I was without a nighty, and I thought, w- where did the nighty go? <laughs> I couldn't understand it. So I was virtually standing in the nude. Mm. The other thing is, I remember just slightly going to the left of the verge, the grass verge, uh, and I felt a, a strange presence. In fact, I have omitted to put it in the book. I felt a strange presence, energy around me. And I, I didn't know what it was. I just, it was like a protection. Mm. It was quite, yeah, quite bizarre. However, I thought I must do because I'm a shot. So I shouted and called my neighbor. Their bathroom came out onto that our front part of the house. Strangely, they subsequently told me that that window was always closed, but that night that left it open. Yeah. Isn't that strange? Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. And then you were rushed to hospital, weren't you? And yes, okay. Yes, then they took me in, and she called Ina, was her name, mm-hmm. and she phoned. And went to hospital straight away, yes, to the Carl Hospital. And they thought you were going to lose your eyesight. And you couldn't do common. Well, yes, they they didn't think that I would certainly, that nobody knew what would happen with the eyesight, but certainly couldn't couldn't do common in a week's time. Right, right, right. But, and and I know we're jumping because of time and all that, but you did, in fact, ultimately do common. You sang the last night. Yes. Triumphantly. There was no giving up in my mind. Mm. I didn't even know that there would be an opportunity, however, yeah. Well, let's now stop for a moment 
and ponder what you've said, this awful thing that happened to you, uh, and listen to Leontine Price, another of your favorite sopranos, singing Visidarte from Tosca by Puccini. That's the voice of Leontine Price, Visidarte from Tosca by Puccini. Another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Sarita Stern. Sarita, you have just written this book, and in the course of the interview and what we've been saying, you've often made reference to a spiritual side to your life. It was interesting. You were brought up as a Christian. You converted to Judaism. Then you came back. And still, spirituality is very important to you. It's the only real thing to me. Is it? 
It keeps you going. Absolutely. Keeps me not only going, keeps me in touch with truth. Keeps me in touch with the world as it is in reality and mm. and what is untouched by so many people and unknown by so many people. Yes, and the awareness that the Spirit of God, the Creator, the Jehovah, whatever we want to call the divine is guiding our lives is in every life yes and every person Sarita are you still teaching I am wow at 90 yes <laughs> and are you still enjoying it absolutely love every moment of it I love the creativity I love to carve the facets it's like carving <laughs> the facets of a diamond Oh, yes, to it's get the right exciting. sound, to the beauty the of sound. To get the right sound, yes. yes. But now you were just telling me that one of your pupils is has just made her debut at the Metropolitan. Yes, in the yes, she accepted at the Metropolitan Studio. It began last year, September. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is uh, Sipokazi Martins. Uh, and she, she was given... This is her second year in the studio, and she was given the role of Flora in La Traviata. Um, It debuted last week or 10 days ago, I'm not quite sure. Uh And it will be on at the cinemas, uh, apparently on the 26th. Yes, I saw Uh, something about that. Did you see that? So she's on the Metropolitan Opera stage. Yes, I am thrilled. Yes. It must be very heartwarming for you to see how well your students have done over the years. Heartwarming, grateful, grateful for the teamwork, grateful for the growth in me, mm-hmm. and gra- grateful for the growth in them, seeing them change and become aware. The consciousness and awareness of what they are doing mm-hmm. and what they would l- aspire to, only with consciousness and an awareness of what lies within them. Mm-hmm. It's a remarkable story that is in your book. I'm going to give the details in a moment of where people can get this book from. And with that tragedy that happened, it seems extraordinary that you recovered so well. No bitterness. And you say the perpetrator has never been discovered. No, not discovered, no. Wow. Okay, now your book is called The Inner Voice of Sound, uh, with Sally Argent co-writing with you. As I said, filled with lovely pictures and press cuttings and um, a life in in music. Even Barry Smith is there, um, who actually got you to sing, didn't he, quite early in the oratorio world. So this book, it's not really in the shops, is it? You can get it from, I'm going to give you a telephone number now, Margie Weir Cairns. Margie Weir Cairns. If you want a copy of this book, it's 280 rands, 072-277. Double four nine three. So that's O seven two two double seven double four nine three. If you miss the number, ring me here during the week at Fine Music Radio, and I'll be able to tell you. But um, Sarita, it's been uplifting talking to you. Thank you for coming all the way into the studio, and we're going to end with Grace Bumbry, who obviously is another favourite of yours, singing an aria by Verdi, O Don Fatale from Don Carlo. Thank you very much, Rodney. It's been an absolute joy. Well, we'll do it again when you turn 100. How about that? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, don't fatale, oh, 
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.